So Richard did this a few years ago uh, when we were here. Uh, he did a Name That Tune. And I want to start today with the Name That Tune as well. I like Name That Tune. It's a game I'm good at. I'm good at remembering information nobody else cares about, uh, especially musical information. And so what I want you to do is this. In a second, I'm going to ask Edmund to play a track. And um, I'll let it go for a little bit. I want people to kind of understand. Hopefully somebody will recognize this song. I think you will. But if you recognize, as soon as you recognize it, just raise your hand. And then more and more of you who do it, eventually, maybe after 30 seconds, I'll stop it. Okay? So, Edmund, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Keep going, guys. Anybody else? Nobody else? All right, Edmund, that's good. <laughs> Okay, Richard, what song is that? I of the Tiger. Does anybody know who sang it? Nobody who sang it? I know this one. <laughs> What's that? Survivor. Okay. What movie was that from? Rocky. Okay. That's what I want to talk about, actually. The rest of it was just a scam. You guys who answered correctly can come get some uh, dollar store candy from my office afterwards. Okay. Um... Yeah, Rocky. I loved those Rocky movies as a kid. They were wonderful, you know, motivational things. And this song actually is a quintessential motivational song. I worked with a guy, and he said his, his uh, jogging playlist was one song, I Have the Tiger. I'm like, maybe he ran for three minutes. I don't know. But <laughs> he loved that song, and he said it was good for him. So, um, But I love those movies, those Rocky movies. And, you know, I only, there's a bunch of them out now. I watched the first four. One, two, three, four. Okay? Um, I kind of gave up after that because I started to see a pattern developing. And if you watch those movies, you will see it. Rocky is always the underdog. Right? No matter how many times he wins, Rocky always comes back and finds a way to be an underdog. He has to overcome, you know, overcome all these obstacles to win the fight. But we love underdogs, don't we? Um, we I think... All our movies, Karate Kids, another one from my youth that we love. Oh, we're going to be that. Rudy. Does anybody remember Rudy? Yeah, Braveheart. I'm only a part Scottish, but I'm all Scottish when I watch Braveheart, right? Okay. But even in our sports, we love to, whoops, again. Uh, we love to watch sports and love to cheer for the underdog. I love March Madness and love to watch and see upsets. That's what I like to see. But in our Bible stories, we like underdogs. David and Goliath, right? Moses in the Exodus, like the see of the sky. These guys empowered by God who overcome these great obstacles. But in real life situations, it sucks to be an underdog, right? I mean, nobody wants to feel like that. Nobody wants to be scared, discouraged. Nobody wants to have to be in that. It's not fun. It's a difficult place to be. But all of us at some time in our Christian walk will feel weak and insignificant. We'll feel like an underdog. Um, there's a lot of ways that we can do that. Um, maybe you're struggling with sin in your life, habitual sin, something you can't beat. Maybe you've prayed for a loved one for a long time and you don't see any change in them. Maybe you feel like the church ministry you're involved in doesn't, isn't making an impact, isn't really important, doesn't doing what you want it to do. Maybe you're not even getting involved because you feel inept, like that you can't do it, that you think the thing's going to fail even if you try. Maybe you're just overwhelmed by the state of the world. You watch the news and you feel like it's dark, it's lost, right? Evil's winning, we're losing. Today, I want to look at those kind of feelings 
I want to look at these two, two uh, parables, the mustard seed and the leaven, or the mustard seed and the yeast. And I believe that these are told, Jesus tells these, uh, these parables to his disciples as an encouragement, right? He's trying to encourage those who feel weak, those who are underdogs. And so I think these parables can be like eye of the tiger for us. And they can motivate us, they can encourage us, they can challenge us to live in our uh, Christian walk and to step out. So I want to read, looking at Matthew 13, verses 31 to 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all its seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. These parables are called the parables of small beginnings. right? Um, and the main point here is that God builds his kingdom using small things. But the kingdom of God, I know Richard's talked about this a bit, but it's both present and it's future. right? Jesus tells the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is in their midst. He tells another group that it's come upon them. The kingdom of God has come upon them. To Nicodemus, he says, in order to receive the kingdom, you must be born again. So we have this sense that the kingdom is now. But we also, there's also this other thing. He warns against this expectation of an earthly kingdom to the Jews, right? And he says that the kingdom was coming. So there's more to come. We have part of it, but we don't have the full thing, right? It's present and it's future. It isn't complete. Right now, we have a spiritual kingdom in human hearts, right? That's where it exists. Eventually, though, it will, be, it will become to its full completion. It will be consummated, and Christ will reign over everything. But right now, we're in the middle time, right? We're, it's not completely there yet. We don't live in that full reality of God's kingdom. So we can become overwhelmed and beaten down. So today, as we look at this passage, John had three truths that I think can provide encouragement for us when we feel like that. The first is that God has initiated his kingdom. God has a plan. Let's look at verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. So the man here, okay, uh, is Jesus, is God. Um, in Matthew 13, there's two other parables that precede this one. The parable of the sower, which we remember had the four soils, the different soils. The sower there is God, sowing his seed. The next one is the parable of the weeds, and it tells the story of a man who, who puts his weeds out, his enemy comes and puts, uh, uh, sorry, he puts the seeds out. His enemy comes and plants weeds in between them all, right? In the same case, the man there is God. So God is the one who's taking initiative. God is the one who's doing the planting and the sowing. But he's planting the mustard seed. The mustard seed here represents the kingdom of God, right? And he's planting it in a field. And the field here is human hearts, okay? The mustard seed is very small, You've probably all heard this before. You've heard sermons on this, right? Um, it isn't actually the smallest seed, but it was used in the in you know rabbinical tradition to kind of emphasize the smallness of something as small as a mustard seed. Jesus himself uses this language, right? He says, you know, "If you have the faith of a mustard seed," he uses it as in other places. But it's just so tiny; it's seven, you can fit seven hundred and fifty mustard seeds weighs one gram. That's how small they are, right? So it's a way of just emphasizing how tiny and small something is. Small beginnings. But out of these humble beginnings, God inaugurates his kingdom, right? Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 
We see this, these small beginnings and this tininess. We see that from the very beginning. Where does Jesus show up? He, sh- he shows up in a podunk town in Israel, right? And not in a significant place in the world at the time. To a powerless teenage girl, he's born in the lowliest of places. And he's the savior of the world. But who are the first witnesses? Dirty shepherds. Scum- they're scumbags, right? Not really important people. They weren't. <laughs> Philippians 2, 5 through 8 highlights this well as well. If you want to put that up. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, God's approach doesn't make sense to us. Why would he start like this? If you're a God of all things, why not just come in power and do it, right? But we need to recognize his sovereignty here, recognize that it is his work, it is his plan. Remember the story of Gideon and Judges, Judges 6 and 8? That's a great underdog story. <laughs> um, the Israelites are facing these forces, the Midianites and the Amalekites, Right, this massive force, as many as you know, uh, seas on the sand, seashore or uh, whatever the beach. <laughs> uh, God whittles down the Israelite army from thirty-two thousand down to three hundred, right? And then He confuses the enemy in in such a way that only He could be credited with winning, right? God wants credit. God wants the glory. He wants us to recognize that it's His power, right? Oftentimes we feel anxious in our Christian walk because we have this belief that we have to do it ourselves. But this story about Gideon and what the parable is telling us is that it's God's work. He started it and he will bring it to completion. We just need to trust in him. See, it's not about us. It's about God working for his glory. He planted it. All we have to do is be faithful servants with what he gives us. I think it's important to remember Zechariah 4.10. It says, Do not despise this small beginning, for the eyes of the Lord rejoice to see the work begin. God works and uses small things for his glory. So we see that. God's working. God has a plan. He's the planter. That's the first reason we should be encouraged. The second reason that we can have hope is that God empowers his people to build his kingdom. He works in and through us. And I want to look at two images here. First is the mustard seed in verse 32. What is the smallest of all seeds? Yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. Like I've already said, the mustard seed is tiny. What's, what's important here is the contrast between what it is to what it becomes, right? The mustard tree is not the biggest tree in the, in the world, right? But the, it's the contrast. It's the growth that he's, he's highlighting here, right? And you look on, I looked online. There's all sorts of different, uh, you know, people say different things about it. Some say it can go to six feet. Some say it can go up to 20 feet and 20 feet wide. So there's a lot of discrepancy there. But we know that this tree grows. That's not what's important. What's important is the contrast from the tiny seed to the big tree. Interesting thing about these, these, these mustard trees is that they grow in all sorts of climates. Right? And as Jesus uses it, in that context, it would have been a dry climate, an arid place. So it's a resilient plant. Horticulturists will say, don't plant it near your septic tank. It's going to find the water and it's going to destroy it. Right? So the thing about this is it knows how to live. This tree knows how to grow. It knows how to live. Knows how to find water. So that's how God's kingdom grows. As Christians, we see God working in our hearts as individuals. 
We also see him working into his, in growing his kingdom through discipleship. We all, often of us, we grow through difficult circumstances, just like the tree. It can grow in different climates, different circumstances. We grow in difficult circumstances as well. You look at the disciples before the resurrection and then look at them afterwards, right? There's a change in them as they go through that process. It's not easy, but they're growing. They grew massively right, during that time. For me, as a young person, young adult, I saw God really work in my heart because I was, I'm a really relational person. And I had, I think, an unhealthy reliance on people, right? They really fed my sense of self, and I needed relationships all the time. But it was through a number of, freak, number of different uh, difficult circumstances, different disappointments with people and loneliness that God drew me close to him, right? So God works through these difficult things to help us grow. On a larger scale, we see the early church, they go through persecution, right? And to this day, we see that. Not, God often works through persecution to grow his church. So that's one thing. We see the growth through the mustard seed, the tree. We see growth. I also want to look at the leaven, verse 33. He's told them it's still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed about, into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through the dough. Yeast is usually um, associated with something negative. In Mark 8, uh, Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. It's like an infection. It's something bad, right? Jesus turns it around here and uses it in a positive sense. It's good to eat bread that has yeast, that has leaven, right? It's soft. It's uh, satisfying. It's enjoyable. As opposed to bread without leaven, which is dry and hard and unpleasant, uninteresting, right? And here he talks about the yeast being mixed in or hidden. In, some, in this, version, this, chapter, this uh, version, it's mixed. Other versions say hidden. It's the same root, root word as in Colossians 3.3, 3, where it says, we are hidden in Christ. It will be revealed when Christ appears. We will appear as well. So the world won't necessarily recognize we're being transformed, right? We'll be in there. It's working. But that yeast is in the dough. It's working, right? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's our guide, our comforter, our counselor. In our hearts, he works and he transforms us slowly. You also see the amount of dough, the amount of flour, 60 pounds of flour, or three measures in some versions, right? That's enough for a big party. That's a lot of bread. (laughs) <laughs> this transformation in the Christian's heart spreads. It doesn't just stay with us. It spreads out of us to the people around us, and it spreads into the world around us. Right? So we get to participate in the transformation of the world. Um, the impact of the church is often not recognized by the media. Right? I mean, most people you know, they don't see it. You know, most, a lot of stuff is ignored. We don't really hear about it in the news. When something happens, it's great. Um, we're seen as irrelevant and unimportant, right? Even though Christian agencies, you know, when there's a crisis, they're the first ones there and they're the last ones to leave. Even after all the media attention and the celebrities have all gone away, Christian agencies are still there. I was shocked a few years ago when the Washington Post, you know, during the time of the Ebola crisis in West Africa, the Washington Post ran an, ran an article about Samaritan's Purse and SIM, two Christian agencies, Right? And it was praising them for that very thing, that they were there. They were the first ones there. They took risks of their own lives. They took risks, and they were the first ones there and the last ones to go. That doesn't happen very often, but it's, I love to see it when it does. And we don't do it for, for the media to pay attention, right? We don't need to have them recognize us. But the impact through, the, through church history, we see it. If you look at church history, you see the impact of the church as well. Starting with human hearts, but it spreads outward from there. 
education systems, health care, right? civil rights. All of these things are an outflow of the gospel. God works through human hearts. He changes slowly, little by little, person by person, and he grows his kingdom, and it impacts the world around us. This isn't always easy for us to see, uh, but I think we should be encouraged by Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though inwardly we are wasting away, outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Some of our anxiety comes when we try to do things in our own strength, right? We need to focus on him and to remember that it's God working through us to build his kingdom. And so we have those first two. Sometimes when we feel small, we can be encouraged by the fact that God has planted it, that he has a plan, it's his work, he initiates it, and that he is using us to do that work. Right? Finally, the third point is here, that God's kingdom will be fully realized. We know how the story ends. We can have confidence because Christ will come and Christ will reign. So we can be encouraged by that. In verse 32, the second half says, Yet when it grows, and we'll talk about the mustard seed again, when it grows, it becomes the largest of garden plants, becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. I want to focus on that last little bit. So the birds come and perch in its branches. Jesus is recalling old, an Old Testament image with this phrase. right? In Ezekiel, there's similar language in chapter 17 and 31. And then in Daniel as well. And he says this, Daniel 4, 10 to 12. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. The tree becomes so big, it grows so big that all the birds can, can land. It gets strong enough the birds can land in it. They find protection there, right? It's a source of life for all. C.H. Dodd says this, A tree sheltering birds is a symbol of a great empire offering political protection to its subject states. Jesus here is referencing a time when everything will be in its rightful order. All people will come under the rule of God. His kingdom will provide for all. So let's go back to the yeast again. The yeast spread through all the dough, right? The entire world will hear the good news, right? The whole world will experience this new kingdom. All will see it, and God will be glorified. Not just going to stay, it spreads through everything. Earlier on, we looked at Christ's humility in Philippians 2, a great passage. He's he's obedient to death on the cross, right? Here's the rest of that passage from Philippians 2, verses 9 and 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That, that at that name, Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. I love that. Every knee will bow to Christ's name. 
Throughout history, when Christianity is compared to you know, other philosophies, it has looked small, right? Other powers, other things like that. But what has happened to those things? What happened to the Stoics? What happened to the Gnostics? What happened to the Roman Empire, right? They haven't stood the test of time, but Christianity has. New ideologies come up all the time, new ways. They're going to fall by the wayside as well. The truth will prevail no matter how much and how small we may seem in comparison. So this is, this is coming. Dale Bruner says that the church is the new Israel, that we are the first fruits of God's kingdom, right? We are we're now, we're here. Eventually that kingdom will be consummated and everyone will see it. Isaiah 40.31 says this. This is the reality that we live in. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. See, we know the end, right? We can have confidence because we know the end. So, what did you guys do last Sunday night? <laughs> did anybody watch our after game? Is there anybody here? Yeah. <laughs> Millions of anxious Raptor fans watched the last four seconds of a game, right? Before Kawhi Leonard sinks that buzzer beater and it bounces, boop, 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 and, right? People were dying. People were sitting there and freaking out, right? I didn't watch that basketball game. I was too scared to watch that basketball game. <laughs> So I waited until I got a buzz on my phone and it says Raptors won 92-90. And then I turned on my TV and I watched the highlights over and over and over again, right? See, I had a totally different experience than people who were watching it live, right? I had no anxiety whatsoever. I could just sit there and enjoy it, knowing that the Raptors were going to win, right? No stress, right? And we can have peace like that as Christians as well. We can live with joy in spite of our circumstances because we do know the end, Right? We know that God's kingdom will be fully realized, that every knee will bow, that the earth will recognize them as their king. We need to keep this reality in the forefronts of our mind, before of our mind. We can be freed to live for his glory. John Piper, if you ever listen to him, he repeats this phrase over and over and over again. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I'll say that again. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And we can be satisfied in him because we know the ending, right? God's kingdom is a reality for us. We serve a gracious and loving God, and we can live to glorify him. My, um, growing up, my dad, he was a little bit of a cheapskate. Uh, other, people's offices, <laughs> other people's offices would have posters of, you know, eagles with nice, you know, inspirational phrases or Bible verses or, you know, that kind of thing. My dad had three by five cards with a thumbtack stuck through. <laughs> and uh, he had a verse on uh, one of them, Jeremiah 12, 5. And uh, it stuck with me, and I recognized it later as an adult when I read this passage. But it says this, If you have raced with men on foot, and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? The context of this verse is that uh, Jeremiah has been complaining to God about his justice. Right? And why did the wicked prosper? That kind of thing. And this is God's answer. If you have raced with men on foot, and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? I love this verse because it shows God's amazing grace here. It's both a rebuke and a promise at the same time. Right? We are insignificant and weak on our own. Right? God's recognizing that. It's only in God's power that we can accomplish anything. Right? 
I mean, he wants us to compete with horses, right? He wants us to do the impossible. This verse is also about changing our perspective, right? We are small, and as we rely on God, he will work through us. We are not underdogs, though. We feel like underdogs, but we're not underdogs. Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? In verse 37 of the same chapter, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can be confident knowing that God works, that he works through the weak and broken individuals, right? That he wants to build this church so that we can change the world around us. We're privileged. We have the entire story. We know the beginning, that God initiated his kingdom, that he had a plan, right? We know the middle, that he's working through us. He's working in our hearts and he's working in us to change the world around us. And we know the end, that God will be glorified. His kingdom will be realized in all its fullness. So maybe you are struggling today with a habitual sin. Maybe you have been praying for somebody for a long time and they're not changing, but you can see. And maybe you feel like the church ministry you're involved in isn't working, isn't having an impact. Maybe you're overwhelmed by the world. And it seems stark in that we're losing. And I tell you, don't give up. God uses small things. He's going to use you and I to establish his kingdom. He wants us to compete with horses, right? He wants us to overcome. Okay, let's pray. Lord, all of us at some point are going to experience discouragement. We're going to feel weak. We're going to feel insignificant. That is because we are when we try to do things in our own strength. But by your power, Lord, we can overcome to bring you glory. Thank you for revealing the whole story to us so that we can live with confidence. Help us to live in that reality every day, the reality of your kingdom, Lord, to spur each other on, to encourage each other, Lord, knowing that it is you working through us. And you want us to compete with horses. Amen.